six yards away from his sixth Super Bowl. And of course, for the young upstart 49ers, they're six yards away from Pontiac. Third and three. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone, and he caught it! Dwight Clark! It's a madhouse! And remember that guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks, it's me, your favorite fan of the first football team to finally fell the 49ers in the Super Bowl, James, and oh my goodness, would you look at who is here with me today. Diaz with you. I'm not able to pull off some incredible alliteration like James just did with all those F words, but you will be saying holy F when you hear who our special guest is today. Everybody knows him. He is the seven-time special guest on this podcast <laughs> and many more times. Please introduce yourself, sir. That's right. It's me, the number one fan of alliteration, uh, the very special guest, Xavier. Xavier, as always, such a pleasure to have you. And guys, just in case you were wondering, I can go ahead and give you a count. As of right now, 47 appearances that our good friend Xavier has made. It ended in seven. You were close enough. Yeah, yeah. the 40 cut out, you know, your mic was dead there for a second. That's all that it was. Four score is, or is score, how many is score? Score is 20. 20. Two score and seven guest appearances. <laughs> many other scores, many other victories on this show. Welcome back, Xavier. <laughs> Glad to be here. Yeah, speaking of scores, let's go ahead and just talk about what's going on right now. Diaz, who's making memories for you? So making memories for me is a person that I certainly hope does not call himself a Brooklyn resident anytime soon. I want him to be a Philadelphia resident for life. He's certainly out and about in Philadelphia right now. I am talking about Tyrese Maxey, the love of my life, the source of light in my life. It's just been an amazing past week for Tyrese around Philadelphia. For, for those who aren't aware, Tyrese ran a clinic for youth, uh, so a nice basketball camp to connect him with some of the young fans around here. Um, the other thing he did, which some people may think, ah, maybe he's risking injury, but I think it's great for his brand and his brand in Philadelphia. There was a pro-am game that was up at LaSalle the other day, and Tyrese Maxey showed up, dropped 34 points, embarrassed people, had a great time, interacted with the crowd. It was just lovely to see. And the fact that, you know, he is a Texas native and he did recently say in an interview, like, listen, I, can't, I don't know if I can ever go as far as wearing Eagles gear. I'm from Texas. All my Cowboys family, they'd kill me. But while nobody's perfect and his Cowboys fandom is his one imperfection, it's been great to see him ingrained himself in Philadelphia, try to make himself as much a part of our city as he can. And there have been the rumors that Kevin Durant may prefer to come to Philadelphia. If he does, it's impossible to see a package the Sixers could put together that wouldn't include Tyrese Maxey. So if that happened, that's what it would have to be. Personally, I'm going on the record right now, and I will never change from this opinion unless this trade actually happens, in which case I will immediately contradict myself. <laughs> but until that day, right now on this podcast, there's no chance you can give up Tyrese Maxey. You need to hold on to him. We need to see what the big three of him, Harden, and Embiid can do with a full, like, actual training camp to play together. And I'm not sure that KD necessarily elevates our title chances that much in the next three seasons. And after those three seasons, I don't think there's any argument that we'd be better off with Maxey instead of Durant. So that's kind of the way I look at it. Never give up Tyrese Maxey. 
always keep him in Philadelphia so that he can make many, many more great memories for us Philadelphians. Joseph Sy cares less about having a winning basketball team than he does over just exerting his, his control over KD. So I don't think a trade is ever happening. Well, tell him to just pay attention to the Liberty. Give, I, I talked about this the other day. Give, give Sabrina Ionescu more help. Well, Xavier, I mean, let's just go right into it. How are you feeling about Sabrina Ionescu right now? And how are you feeling about the Philadelphia Liberty in a pretty strong position at this point? In a strong position, but my opponent, Mr. Davis, has now used some streaming pickups to make it a little tighter than I thought it was going to be. After yesterday, when he had six people going to my two, he was leading by 31 points, and I thought I was going to have six going to his three today. And now it's six against five. I still like my chances with the players I have going tonight to make that gap zero or put myself in the lead. In which case, no games on Saturday, and then full squads going Sunday, where it's going to be Ionescu and Plum and Miesman and Howard versus Courtney Vandesloot, Leia Copper, Elena Deladon, Asia Wilson. It's going. It's going to be it's a star powered, star powered last day. It's, it is going to come down to the wire, and that will be exciting. But I want, did want to talk about something else WNBA-related. So everybody has talked about Sue Bird's retirement. She's been a fixture in the WNBA and in Seattle for 20 years, and it makes sense. And there's also been a lot of talk about possible Diana Taurasi retirement, also after nearly 20 years over in Phoenix. But there is another player who has as many MVPs as those other two combined who is also retiring after this year and has not gotten nearly enough press. And that's Sylvia Fowles. Thank you so much for bringing Sylvia Fowles up. The Minnesota Lynx dynasty, the people of Minnesota complain so much. And I really don't want to hear it. I don't think Minnesota's that suffering of a sports town if you had just paid any attention to one of the more dominant, what, like five or six year runs of any WNBA team in recent history. Like you could say the, the really early Houston teams, Seattle now, I don't know. Minnesota Lynx are very good. They won four titles in seven years. Uh, Sylvia Fowles was the finals MVP for two of them in the WNBA MVP for 2017. He's been an eight-time All-Star, three-time All-WNBA first team, four-time All-WNBA second team, four-time Defensive Player of the Year, seven-time All-Defensive first team. She's probably the greatest defender in WNBA history. Oh, and she has four Olympic gold medals with the U.S. women's national team. I read a great article uh, in the New York Times about her last week titled, Why Do I Have to Work Twice as Hard Just to Get Noticed? That was about, you know, how it's been pretty below the radar, the fact that one of the greatest WNBA players of all time is retiring, just because two other of the greatest WNBA players are either Retiring or possibly retiring. And of course, the one who gets the least amount of press is the African-American woman, which yeah. is unfortunately not surprising, even in a sport such as the WNBA, you know, based on how much the basketball world has loved Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi since college. But Sylvia Fowles, incredible career, just as good, if not better than the two of them. And I hope that in her next career as a mortician, because Yes, she works as a mortician on her off days. And I, there's a fantastic article in ESPN about her fascination with death and how she believes Americans treat death 
extremely poorly, and their lives should be celebrated, not feared. And her plan is to become a mortician who makes people and their families as comfortable as possible. And I think that's awesome. I'm fascinated by like the modern day movement towards ethical morticians. I also just want to say people are so quick to like say in the modern sphere that, that Diana Taurasi is the undisputed greatest in WNBA history. And that very, very conveniently blows past Tamika Catchings. Just saying, like, look at the numbers. Tamika Catchings deserves to be in that conversation. I think that is definitely part of this larger question of why is Sylvia Fowles not getting noticed as much as these other two. The other thing I want to say about Sylvia Fowles versus those two is they're both guards. And, like, she's been doing this with a much larger body. She's a grinder. And she says, like, I'm in pain all the time. It's it's a much different build to have gone through this long-term gauntlet at the same time. So, Xavier, thank you for giving us a moment to properly acknowledge that i just want to throw one more name in that ring for arguments for goat that people forget about too much cynthia cooper if she was able to join the wnba when would have been her rookie year instead of coming in as like a 10-year veteran like I, the yeah. comparison i would make to the yeah. to the nba would be like uh, like an arvidas sabonis arvidas sabonis i think is one of the most underrated basketball players of absolute all time because he didn't come to the league until basically after what his prime would have been. And we saw a little bit of what it was. And to me, it's the same thing with Cynthia Cooper. I mean, four-time finals MVP, two-time regular MVP in what? Five seasons of playing in the WNBA? So I people blow past her all the time, too. Cheryl Miller, you can go back there, too. You can go to baseball and say, like... Now. Would we call Roy Campanella the greatest catcher of all time? Would we acknowledge like Satchel Paige is the greatest pitcher of all time? It's it's a good Satchel question. Satchel Paige but... was striking out the side at the age of 59 when he was signed as what no one told him was a joke thing, and he still strikes out the side of a major league team. Like, y- yeah, so imagine got all of that Satchel Paige. And if, but yeah, I, hey, let's let's appreciate the people while we have them, especially if they're not getting the appreciation they deserve. Uh, oh. I think we all know what that means. It's time for a minor league lightning round. The minor leagues in baseball have been wild the last week. And so I just have to, I'm going to try as hard as I can to keep this to its namesake a lightning round, but I got four hits from the minor leagues that I got to share with you. We'll lead off with, I think just the most overwhelmingly positive one, Solomon Bates, 2018 eighth round pick by San Francisco. He was most recently playing with the double A Richmond flying squirrels this season. Digger released at the end of the year, had a totally fine season, uh, but he was cut, does not seem to have had anything to do with the thing that he then announced, which is that he is coming out as the second ever minor league player to be an out gay man while playing in the minor leagues. That would be after David Denson, by the way, is number one. Says that he came out to teammates in 2019, but just finally felt compelled after this as he goes into his next chapter of trying to sign with another organization, that that be something that he's upfront about and shares with the world. So kudos to Solomon Bates. Big kudos also to the Springfield Cardinals' Chandler Redmond. Chandler Redmond became the second ever player in professional baseball history to hit for the home run cycle. He had a solo shot, a two-run shot, a three-run shot, and a grand slam in four innings of play in this game. I said second ever. The only other person to do it, this was the Springfield Cardinals that Chandler Redmond was a part of, that is the AA affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals, Tyrone Horn is the only other player to have ever done it. He did with the Arkansas Travelers once in a game in San Antonio. And at the time, the Arkansas Travelers were the AA affiliate for the St. Louis Cardinals. Those are the only two times it's been done in professional baseball. Now, 
we get into a couple slightly sillier things. If I ask you to name a very old pitcher that isn't Satchel Paige Diaz, who would you, for instance, maybe come up with? Uh, Fernando Valenzuela. Fernando Valenzuela is a good one. I was hoping you might go with our boy Jamie Moyer, Jamie but Moyer. Fernando Valenzuela is very good because there was a Hispanic teammate of Jamie Moyer's in 2010, a guy named Nelson Figaro. He played one more season in the majors, then he hung it up, and he's actually become a pitching coach. He's recently been with the independent league Staten Island Ferry Hawks. The Ferry Hawks this past weekend got an unexpected doubleheader. Because of some scheduling mishaps and some postponements that had happened, they all of a sudden realized they were going to have to play two games in a day. And these are both going to be seven-inning doubleheader games, but they did not have a pitcher for the second one. And so Nelson Figaro. Let me interject. It is Figueroa because I remember Figueroa. him from the early 2000s Phillies. I love Nelson Figueroa. Please continue. Do you love Nelson Figueroa more if you learned that the second batter that he faced in this game, that he played 11 years after being in professional baseball most recently, he did strike out his second batter? I expect nothing less. So he struck out four batters in total in this seven-inning complete game. He gutted it out. He pitched the whole game, and he did gut it out because he did give up 13 total base runners and 10 total runs. So they did lose this game. But you know what? Nelson Figueroa stuck it through the full time. He does now have this game updated with an 11-year break between his most recent professional appearance and now this minor league appearance, if you go to his baseball reference page. Unreal. I thank you for bringing this to light for me because... Uh, he, so I guess yeah, he retired 11 years ago, but like in the early 2000s, he was one of those guys that got called up and you're like, no, wait a second. This wasn't a prospect, but he looks pretty solid. And to know he's still out there brings, brings joy to my heart. I have one other thing, and I don't know if this will bring joy to your heart, but it has been lodged in my brain since I found out about this ongoing saga. And we do start in the major leagues initially on this one. We start in Cleveland, where at every home game, they have a hot dog race. There are three hot dogs, mustard, ketchup, and onions is their third one. An interesting choice. Now, through 50 games, here's how the record broke down. Ketchup had 25 wins. Onions also had 25 wins. If you're doing your basic arithmetic at home, you realize that through 50 games, that means that Mustard had not won a single race this entire season. And so, on August 8th, Cleveland released an official press release. They optioned Mustard to High A Lake County. Here's some some quotes from it. The tantrum-throwing condiment is being sent down to try and get his mental and physical game back to an MLB caliber level. Here's Mustard's official response, because you know Mustard issued an official response through the Cleveland Guardian Hot Dogs Twitter account. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. To my loyal fans through the years, I'm sorry. Please show up and support me. I need it now more than ever. Come Tuesday to the Lake County Captain's game, I'll be back, you can count on that. This had been going on again all season. At one point, WKYC, one of the local news affiliates, they did a segment. I don't know if they actually had ketchup and mustard piss into cups, but they certainly pretended that they had ketchup, mustard, and onions take urine tests to make sure that ketchup and onions weren't doping. This has been absurd, and it has an absurd ending. They go to Lakeland. Lakeland has a taco race around their bases every single game. Three people get dressed up as tacos. And mustard was entered in this race, again, as part of its rehab assignment in the minor leagues. Mustard did win this race, its very first one. However, there was, as that same WKYC puts it, a questionable scuffle as they rounded third base. Accounts from fans who are at the game on Twitter say that there was a girl in a taco suit who went down. It looked like Mustard pushed off a little bit, maybe not intentionally, but she went down. And people were saying that either that girl has a future in the WWE selling injuries like in performance, 
or she tore her ACL. There has been no mention of this in any of the official counts from the Guardians hot dogs, the Cleveland Guardians themselves, the Lake County captains. We have heard no injury update on this probably intern that was dressed as a taco that got swept up into this mustard saga. And so I just had to bring that to everybody's attention. That is our minor league lightning round. I would have mentioned DL Hall, but he's not in the minors anymore. He got called up to Baltimore as of today. What's Can up? Can I bring up something real quick for minor leagues for the yes. minor league roundup? Something that I saw today that is coming out next week that I am very excited for, premiering August 19th on ESPN Plus, the Banana Land docu-series, a six-part miniseries documenting everyone's favorite minor league team slash Harlem Globetrotter light independent league team, the Savannah Bananas. And I cannot wait to consume all Savannah Bananas-related content on ESPN Plus because I just want to see how they come up with ideas for the crazy things that they do. Bananas are technically radioactive, Xavier, so just be careful not to consume too much. At least space it out a little bit. Let's be safe. All right. I mean, I'm just excited to be talking heads in the documentary about you know the lore surrounding the Dolly banana and, and that little baby power. But you know, again, we don't want to look back on our past episodes. We want to look forward to this episode. And Diaz, you're the one who brought the topic for this week, so why don't you go ahead and get us kicked off here? Absolutely. So... One of the types of guys that goes most underappreciated is the big fish in a small pond guy. Now, some people might think like, oh, well, you know, Jerry Rice went to Mississippi Valley State. He was a big fish in a small pond. And look what turned out with him. That's not necessarily the angle we're looking for now. We're looking for big fishes that stayed in that small pond because that small pond was their home. They loved it there. And why would they ever leave a place that they loved so much? And because of that, they may not have entered the national consciousness on the level that they deserve. But we hope today with our international audience that we will bring some of these big fishes in these small ponds to light so that they may be celebrated for what they deserve. There's nothing wrong with wanting to stay a big fish. You know, sometimes big fish in a small pond is a comfortable situation. It's a very comfortable situation. You don't have to worry about any predators. Everybody looks up to you, sometimes literally, if you're a big fish. So I get it. I do get it. I especially get it when it comes to the guy that I'm presenting on. Now, when I first came up with this category, I wanted to talk about Tubby Raymond. Tubby Raymond is a 300-win coach from uh, the University of Delaware. Won all 300 of his games for the University of Delaware as the head football coach. But that got me thinking back when Tubby was going after his 300th win. I was... A young boy in the stands for that game and for all of his games from uh, from about 96 on. But when I would look at the all-time wins list in the game program, I'd always see this guy at the top that had by far the most wins and was still active and was still building upon it. And I would always think, huh, wonder what that guy's up to. And thankfully, we have this podcast, which now allowed me to dive in and learn more about Winning his coach in college football history with 489 career victories. Also 42 career victories as an ice hockey coach in college. Also coached basketball. Also coached baseball. Also coached track and field. I'm talking about John Gillardi. No, John no middle Gillardi. names. No. No middle names. And uh, I also want to emphasize there is a second G in Gillardi. It's if you were to read it phonetically, it's Gagliardi. But just like Lil Wayne, real G's move in silence, as does John Gagliardi. 
We always start back at the beginning. He was born November 1st, 1926, in a small town known as Trinidad, Colorado, to parents Ventura and Antoinetta. Tr- Trinidadian John Gagliardi. Oh, Gallardi. Gagliardi Gallardi. Is, if you read it, if you, is if you read it the way it's written. Again, real G's move in silence. Just yeah. like John in, in the native Trinidadian, it is Gallardi. Yes, in, in the native Trinidadian, native Trinidadian, that's a tough, that's a little tongue twister there. That's a tough one. So he's born, and uh, obviously, football is an emerging sport in America at this time. And uh, as he enters high school, 1941 was his freshman year. So he's, they don't have football for freshmen. He comes back, plays the JV his sophomore year. And uh, when it's time for junior year, his head coach names him team captain. So this is already very impressive to be named a captain as a junior. This is typically an honor that is reserved for the seniors. This was the last thing that their head coach did at Trinidad Catholic High School. Because before the season could start, their head coach was called off to war in World War II. Now the football team doesn't have a coach, and they're looking around, and they need somebody to step up. John Gallardi says, well, I'm already team captain. It's only natural that I step in and become head coach. Fucking great. (laughs) At 16, he becomes a player coach, which is already an interesting concept when these are fully grown and realized adults. But you can imagine there's some interesting dynamics that are at play. When you are 16 years old, you're going through puberty now, and you are now responsible for coaching all of your teammates. You know, I would still rather be the coach at 16 than being sent off to fight in either Europe or the Pacific Theater at 16. So, I mean, and thankfully, you know, you had to be 18 to go serve in the war. He's only 16, so... He does have to step into the high-pressure situation of coaching high school football. And uh, the team does pretty well. So well, in fact, that when he comes back for his senior year, they say, you know what? We like this player coach thing we got going on. We're not even going to hire a new coach. John, keep on going, buddy. <laughs> Are they? So does he get a salary at all? He does not get paid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I honestly, because I assumed at that point that was going to ruin the amateurship uh, of his playtime. It, it absolutely would have, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But professional sports is never really anything that's too much at the forefront of the mind of John Gallardi. As the 44 season graduates and goes off to attend Colorado College, which is in uh, Colorado Springs. He's not playing football while he's at Colorado College, though. He's, he really thinks this coaching thing is what his path is. So instead, he becomes the head coach at nearby St. Mary's High School. In the combined six years that he coaches high school football between the last two years of when he was in high school and also the four years when he's in college, he wins four conference championships. He might have something here. He really might. He really, really might. He might have 489 things to him. But, you know, after this, he's now graduated college. And he really, like, coaching is his thing at this point. And there's a small school in Helena, Montana, called Carroll College. And they're thinking of getting rid of their football program because they've had many losing seasons. There's a lack of interest in the team. John says, not so fast. Let me come in there and let me see if I can whip the boys into shape. They are the Fighting Saints, which seems like a very oxymoronic name. Stays four seasons at Carroll College from 1949 to 1952. In these four seasons, he wins three conference titles for the football team. 
also coaches baseball and basketball there. He does a great job with these teams as well. Very noteworthy as coaching the basketball team. They beat Gonzaga. Yes, that Gonzaga. And like, obviously, this is years before that Gonzaga is that Gonzaga, but still. John Gillardi beat Gonzaga in basketball, which is not even, probably, arguably, not in the top three of the sports that he coaches. He spends these four years there. He does very well. He does so well, in fact, that a small university in Collegeville, Minnesota, St. John's University, they take notice. St. John's is in a bit of a pinch because their head coach, who is a football legend, Johnny Blood, is set to retire. Now, this is where I want to take a brief sidebar to dive in on Johnny Blood. His legal name is Johnny McNally. He goes by Johnny Blood. First of all, Johnny Blood, one of the charter members of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, along with Fred Grange, Don Hudson, Butch Clark, Bronco Nagurski, Mel Hine, Pete Henry, Cal Hubbard, Sammy Ball, Ernie Nevers, and Jim Thorpe. So, Do any of those guys have the nickname Guts? Not to my knowledge. So I know Sammy Damn. Ball, I think, was slinging Sammy. Bronco Nagurski, if that's your name, you don't need a nickname. And obviously everybody knows Jim Thorpe. These are the kind of credentials of the man that he's replacing. Johnny Blood got his name because uh, he got his start playing pro football because there was an open tryout for a local semi-pro team. He was playing at Notre Dame at the time, but he wanted to go to this tryout. But he also didn't want to compromise to, as you said earlier, James, his amateur status. He did join the semi-pro team. So he and one of his friends are on their way to the tryout. And they roll past a movie theater and they see the marquee film that evening is Blood and Sand. So he said, well, that's us. I'm Blood, you're Sand. So he comes up with the He gave himself Blood. the nickname Johnny Blood? He in fact did. It was his fake name. That's way lamer. Way lamer. I don't The fact that he pulled it off and got everyone to go with it after deciding on it is pretty impressive. Like, it's hard to give yourself a nickname. All that makes me think of, though, is that 50 Cent video game that is like the cult hit 50 Cent, Blood in the Sand. Like Johnny the third-person shooter in the Middle East? Yes. That game was called Blood in the Sand. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, yeah, so canonically, you can think of Johnny Blood as being played by Curtis Jackson. We can think that. <laughs> um, Johnny Blood was very white. But listen, for the canon of this show, as depicted by Curtis Jackson. So he does well at the tryout. Makes the semi-pro team. Once he makes the team, he's like, okay, now I'm going to go back to being Johnny McNally. But at this point, the Johnny blood is stuck on. After a couple years in the semi-pro scene, he has a meeting with Curly Lambeau, of course, of the Green Bay Packers. Curly wants to sign him, and he had a unique contract offer to him. He said, listen, I'll give you 100 a week, or we can give it 110 a week if you agree not to drink after Wednesday on a game week. <laughs> Johnny said immediately just give me the 100 and Curly said you know what since you're being so honest about it take the 110 anyway <laughs> integrity it's worth $10 a week it's worth alcoholism that, that sounds like a great punchline Johnny Blood goes on I, I mean obviously he's in the inaugural Pro Football Hall of Fame class he had quite the career he's a four time NFL champion all with the Packers Leads the league in receiving touchdowns in 33, and he was named to the All-Decade team for the 30s. After a few of those years, in 1937, Art Rooney of the Pittsburgh, then Pirates, had an idea, and he said, how about we make you the player coach of this team? 
doesn't go too well. The first year, they have a losing record. The second year, they're even worse. And towards the end of the season, uh, they have a game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, Johnny is also just a big football fan, period. He's also very eccentric. Uh, so he catches a train out to Pasadena to catch USC. And while he's there in the press box, people are noticing, saying, hey, don't the Pirates have a game? Aren't you playing the Eagles this week? He said, oh, no, 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 that game's not till next week. We're on bye week right now. And then they flash the out-of-town scores up on the scoreboard, and he sees, oh, shit, that game's happening right now. Martin How Rudy is that said, possible? It was the 30s, man. That's all I can say. It was the 30s. And now we can just check on our iPhones and see, oh, what am I doing today? Back then, you had to remember it. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> uh, and as we mentioned, the drinking. And the drinking. The drinking certainly played some aspect. Art Rooney said he wanted to fire him right then and there, but all the players loved him, so he had no choice but to let him stay. Three games into season number three is when Johnny Blood finally realized, you know what? This ain't working out. They got shut out. They were 0-3. So he resigns. Art Rooney would later say it was the only team where the players were worried about what the coach was doing. A quick rapid fire, uh, some of his greatest hits from his career and from his life before I get back to our main course, John Galliardi. He once jumped across from ledge to ledge, six stories up, to get back into his hotel room after he missed the curfew. He played an entire game with a collapsed kidney. He once rode the blinds between trains to training camp so that he didn't have to pay the fare. He was once offered to buy an NFL franchise for $1,200, and he said no. As a coach, he parked his car on the train tracks to stop the team train after he missed it following a night of bar hopping, scening, and skirt chasing. He also made a $1,000 death bet with one of his good friends. They both put it in their wills. Blood wrote to him, The one who goes first loses a grand to the one who survives. The loser won't miss the money, and it will console the winner for the loss of a friend. May I live a long time, and you forever. Nolly won the bet. I'm so sad Mark Twain didn't get to live to see him. It would have gotten along famously. But to, uh, to now bring it back to John Galliardi, very quickly after meeting with leadership, he was named the head coach. So two Johns, they of course have like their exit meeting and John Galliardi said, hey, do you have any advice for me, Johnny Blood? Johnny Blood said simply, nobody can ever win at St. John's. These of course make for some famous words given what we already know John Galliardi goes on to do. It seems like a good place to touch on Galliardi's just general coaching philosophy, which I think runs so contrary to the way that sports are kind of taken today, where you know, sports performance training is so prime, so pinnacle. We see kids as young as 10 are getting specialized training to try to develop their skills. John Galliardi wouldn't have stood for any of this. I believe sports are meant to be fun at their core. It's important to work hard when you're out there, but it's still a game. He emphasizes the repetition and the fundamentals. And he also has his ethos, which is known as winning with no's. So a few simple rules that are no. Don't call me coach. Call me John. He doesn't want people revering him like he's some great person. Deion Sanders. I have a <laughs> with Galliardi on this one. But, but Galliardi says don't call me coach. He also doesn't allow whistles out on the practice field. Thinks it's kind of like a dehumanizing thing. They don't use blocking sleds. They never tackle in practice. They only tackle when they're playing games. They were not required to lift. 
and practices would never go more than 90 minutes, and he did not believe in two-a-days. The only ones who are questioning the efficacy, I'm not going to lie, I hear what he's saying about whistles. They are effective communication also. Oh, absolutely. Of course they are. But it was just one of the things that he wanted to remove. And like the no tackling in practice is also extremely unconventional. But I mean, he made kind of the observation that I think, you know, most NFL teams now have in place, which is we tackle in practice, guys get hurt, then they can't play in the games and it makes our team worse. So those were his kind of main rules of what not to do. Immediately, they're very effective. In his first season, he already proved Johnny Blood wrong by leading the Johnnies to a conference title in his first season. His first year there, he also wins the conference championship as the track coach. He also coaches the hockey team to a 42-25-1 record over his first five seasons there. At that point, he says, hey, maybe I should just focus on football. To date, it is still the best winning percentage of any hockey coach in program history. So he was better at that not really trying, or at least not giving it his all, than anyone that has come before or after him that presumably was doing that. And, like, again, this is a college in Minnesota where you figure, again, they're D3, but it's going to be a pretty good D3 hockey team, you would think, or at least a place where it's not hard to get good players. So, a man of many talents, as, as I already said, in addition to football, basketball, baseball, track, ice hockey. Anything he touches turns to coaching gold. And after 10 years of being at St. John's, he does claim his first national championship. It's in the NAIA in 1963. The 33-27 win over Prairie View A&M. Two years later, they claim another NAIA title with a 33-0 victory over Linfield. So within his first 13 years at St. John's, he's already claimed two national championships, many conference titles, it's off to a very good start. Johnny Blood can stick that in his pipe and smoke it. Well, for, for the next 12 years after that period, Johnny Blood might have felt somewhat vindicated because John Gallardi does slow down a bit. They only win four conference championships over the next 12 years, which is a bit of a backslide, but that's okay because at the end of that long, torturous road of only winning four conference championships in 12 years, he does get his first Division Three national championship. They went 10-0-1, only one tie during the regular season. And they win a thriller in the championship. James, do you want to guess who they played? And you know is why it I'm Johns asking. Hopkins? It's not Johns Hopkins. This, this program is no longer Division Three. Is it Towson State University? He beat Towson State University in a 31-28 thriller for his... Ah, uh, not the Tigers! Not our Towson Tigers! The Tigers did have to go down, unfortunately. We now enter a long, torturous road for many. It wasn't a long, torturous road for John Gallardi because, again, he thinks there's a lot of things that are more important than football. But if you were a diehard St. John Johnny's football fan, next 26 years, the theme is close but not close enough. He won 15 conference championships in those 26 years, in addition to making the Division Three playoffs 13 times, so a 50% success rate. As we get into the 90s, we're really on their Buffalo Bills shit for a little bit. In 91, 93, and 94, they go to the Division III semifinals, where they do ultimately lose. In 2000, they finally make it through the semifinals. They win, and they advance to play Mountain Union in the 2000 Division III National Championship. Mountain Union 
if anybody knows anything about Division Three football, they're basically the Alabama of Division Three football, especially at this time. So they won the national championships in 96, 97, and 98. They did not win in 99. So now they're out for blood in 2000 playing against the Johnnies. Tough defensive battle game. Uh, it was cold, windy. It had rained before, so the field was sloppy. Mountain Union goes up 7-0 early. St. John's comes back right at the end of the first half to make it a 7-7 game. The whole second half is just a defensive field position battle. With about 13 minutes left in the fourth quarter, Mountain Union lines up to kick a field goal to go ahead. Johnny's block it. Again, fighting for field position. Mountain Union gets the ball with about three minutes left. They drive all the way down to the 10. And with one second left on the clock, they kick a game-winning field goal. And they beat the Johnnies 10 to 7 to claim the national title. The next season, St. John's advances to the semifinals again. They meet Mountain Union in these semis. This time it's not as close, but they do lose 35 to 14. In 2002, they again make it to the semifinals. This time they don't face Mountain Union. Mountain Union's on the other side of the bracket. They instead face Trinity. They go down in a shootout, 41 to 34. Trinity goes on to lose to Mountain Union in the national championship. Mountain Union are now the three-time defending champions as we now enter the climax of our story, the 2003 season. While this is all happening, Mountain Union is racking up the titles. John Gallardi is getting very, very close to some history. At this time, Eddie Robinson, Grambling State, has the record. 408 wins, most wins for a college football coach. As this season starts, people know, though, he can afford one loss. If they go 9-1 and one in the regular season, he will claim the record. He will get to 409. He has exactly 400. And they open up the season like gangbusters. There's not really any close games. He gets 408 to tie. And on the second to last game of the regular season, in what basically amounts to the conference championship game, uh, St. John's is ranked number two in D3. And they play host to number 10, Bethel. Bethel was also undefeated and also undefeated in the conference. So if John's going to get 409 and win the conference, it's not going to be without a fight. This is an amazing game. It's on YouTube. St. John's has it uploaded to their channel. I would encourage anybody to watch it. And like, listen, D3 football, I don't care what you say. This is an amazing game. They exchange touchdowns early in the first half. Bethel strikes first. St. John's misses their extra points. So it's 14 to 12. 17 seconds up before halftime, St. John's gets a touchdown. Finally does make the extra point. They go up 19-14 to 14 into the break. Bethel scores late in the third quarter with a touchdown. Missed the two-point conversion, so it's now 20-19. to 19. St. John's gets the ball back, and with their drive leading into the start of the fourth quarter, they kick a field goal. They're now 22-20. Cleaning onto this lead through a few punts, Bethel finally scores a touchdown with 4.57 left to go up 26-22. to 22. Five minutes, though, is an eternity, and for a well-coached football team, they're going to be able to get down the field. They're not going to have any issues. Quarterback Ryan Keating immediately leads a touchdown response drive to put the Johnnies up. It took about three minutes, so they get the clock down to a, a little over two minutes left on the clock. And they're up 29-26 after the successful extra point. So, scene set. Hold them to a field goal. At least we played for overtime. Keep them off the board. We got 409 in the books. The first play of the ensuing Bethel drive. Defensive end comes off the backside, gets the strip sack. Johnny's recover. 
Ethel doesn't really have timeouts left, so it sets up a fourth and two with 25 seconds left. Deep into Bethel territory. They go for it. They clinch it. Fantasy football owners would be apoplectic at the fact that the running back went down short of the goal line. Very intentionally. As a ball coach player would do. And now they're able to kneel it out. And they're able to seal number 409. Making John Gallardi the winningest coach in college football history. He says to the crowd afterwards, people ask me how it's done. I tell them it's luck and prayers. Thank you very much. Incredibly humble man. So I mentioned this is the second to last game of the regular season. They essentially win the conference title. They roll in their last game of the regular season to enter the D3 playoffs. Number two in the country. And it's really kind of a cakewalk all the way to the championship game. They go 52-13 to over Concordia. They go 39-14 to over Wisconsin Lacrosse. 56-10 to over Wheaton. And getting back to the semifinals again, they're not to be denied, and they're surely not wanting to leave any doubt with a 66 to nothing victory over Bridgewater. 66 to nothing. Very impressive. They dominate this whole run all the way up to the championship game. Would either of you like to guess who they play in the 2003 national championship game? Union. They play Mountain Union. Now, Mountain Union, as I kind of touched on as I was going over, you know, they, they've won both of the last two national championships. One, something else that they haven't done since they beat Mountain Union in 2000 is lose. They are on a winning streak for now going on four seasons as they enter this national championship game. It's a 55-game winning streak. It is the longest winning streak in college football history. Any division. Against their vaunted nemesis, they do go down 6 nothing early. With three seconds left in the first half, they have the ball on about the 18. You can kick a field goal, and you can go in the halftime down 6-3, to three, but at least you're on the board. Or you can go for it. John Gallardi knows this team is well coached. If I call the right play, they're going to execute it. We're going to get it done. On what's essentially a fourth and goal from the 18, there's three seconds left in the half. This is the last play of the half. He calls a swing pass to his running back. Running back catches it on like the 20, but they block it up perfectly. Sets up a one-on-one with the running back and the Mountain Union defender on about the two-yard line. And he doesn't go left. He doesn't go right. He goes through. Running back lowers his shoulder, absolutely plants the Mountain Union guy, and gets into the end zone as the clock expires. They make the extra point. They go up 7-6. This feels like a psychological turning point in the game. Mountain Union has the lead. Mountain Union is invincible. 55-game winning streak. On that play, St. John's decided that they weren't going to be pushed around. And this gives them the momentum going into halftime. Come back out for the second half. The defensive struggle from the first game kind of seems like the kind of path we're going to be on again. St. John's does manage to knock across a field goal with 158 left in the third quarter. So they go up 10-6. They force an ensuing punt. And now to start the fourth quarter, they have the ball back, facing a third and seven on their own 30. And what is just a testament to a well-coached team that stays patient, they run play action. All the options downfield are covered up. The running back leaks into the flat, makes a great catch right at the marker, and they end up picking up the first down. Two plays later, they give it back to that same running back. He busts a 51-yard touchdown with St. John's up 17-6. This with about 10 minutes left in the game. Mountain Union now knows, okay, if we're going to make our move, we need to make it right now. They immediately respond. They get all the way down the field, and they have a first and goal from the one. 
On first down, they try to run it off the left side. They get stuffed. On second down, they try to run it off the left side. They get stuffed. On third down, they do decide it's time to mix it up. So they go play action. They boot the quarterback out to the right. Tries to hit his receiver running the corner route. And it is picked. And it is ran. And it is ran all the way back for a pick six. Giants are now up 24 to 6 and in full control of this game. They have the ball with two minutes left. They're set to punt it away. But Gallardi has one last trick up his sleeve. He dials up the fake punt. They run it for 15, and this allows them to run out the clock. St. John's finally, 27 years after they last claimed the D3 championship, they're back on top of the mountain. They have ended Mountain Union's 55-game winning streak, and John Gallardi is a championship coach once again. But Diaz, that's only if I'm counting correctly, what, 411 wins? I mean, did, did he hang it up then? It's, it's, a, it's a little more than 411. They ran through four teams en route to the championship. So I think we're on 415 at this point. But thankfully for the St. John's football program, John Gallardi had some more shit to prove. (laughs) Despite that being the setup, this was the last great moment in the sun for for St. John's football program. He continues to coach until 2012. He had two more undefeated regular seasons in 2005 and 2009. Four more conference championships going into 2012. But with both of those undefeated regular seasons, once they lost in the second round, the other time they lost in the first round. And in 2012, the Johnnies go 5-5, five and five, which almost anywhere in the country is absolutely fine. But that's not the standard that John Gallardi has set for himself. With no great celebration and no pompous circumstances, he just decides at the end of this season, I'm retiring now. Didn't announce it before the season. He just decided in that moment, you know, it's time. Before I finish on John Gallardi, um, I just want to tear through some quotes that he said and some of his players have said about him. Um, ESPN did a nice little video on him called St. John, which I, I pull most of these quotes from. So I would encourage our listeners to go check that out. John said, my only rule was the golden rule. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Bobby Clint was a safety class of 2010. He said, Taught that football isn't everything. Football is a stepping stone to something more important. Your life, your family, your friends. Felix Manella, a guard from the class of 1960, said he didn't expect that you're going to go play in the pros, but he did expect that you'd be good men. Ken Roaring, a wide receiver from the class of 64, said, My first day of freshman year, he took out a dime and he held it up to the sun. He said, This dime is your football career. The sun is your education. Don't get them confused. Brandon Novak, a linebacker from the class of 2000, said, 180 guys would come out for the team, and there's only 22 starters, but every single kid was made to feel important. Since he didn't have a, since he had a traditional retirement, I'll put it that way, since he had a traditional retirement and not one where he's seeking to be wooed and awed for his entire last season, the St. John's football program had the opportunity to honor him to start the 2013 season. There's so many players that come back to visit him. And to a man, every single one of them expressed to John, hey, thank you so much for being a leader. Thank you so much for showing me what the important things are in life. And he was asked what that meant to him. And he said, it makes me proud that I touched their lives, hopefully for the best. One other thing before I get to one last John Gallardi quote to send us out on. The Division Three Player of the Year Award is called the Gallardi Award in honor of him. And at his retirement press conference, he was asked, what's his legacy? He said, what's my legacy? 
who here knows who Johnny Blood is? He was the coach before me. He was a charter member of the Football Hall of Fame. And now he's just some forgotten guy that you don't know. So that would be my guess. A few years go by, I'll just be another forgotten guy. But, my friends, we have the opportunity here to make sure that he is enshrined forever. Already in the, in the College Football Hall of Fame, the, the only active coach to ever be inducted in there, also Bobby Bowden, but fuck him. Um, <laughs> and my friends, we have an opportunity today to induct John Gallardi into the Hall of Guy. I love that he nursed that grudge for decades. I was proud of myself here for like nursing a bitter grudge in a fantasy group chat for half a season. He held on to that for decades. Wow. I just, I just want to say he, it was, I don't know if I would necessarily call it a grudge because in, in saying such, like he was like, look, Johnny Blood was like a legend. I loved him. I was in awe the first time I met him. And now all these years later, nobody cares who he is. It was a chip on his shoulder more than anything else. There we go. Right. To emphasize, like, I think he is an incredibly humble person. He was given the chance to talk about, I want to be remembered as, you know, a great leader of men, blah, blah, blah. He's like, you guys aren't going to remember me. Who who really cared? I did a thing. It was good for a while. That's all there is to it. That's kind of the the, the humble, self-deprecating approach of John Gallardi. Don't ever call him coach. And and call him John, which is great because the Johnnies had two coaches that spanned, again, several decades named John. That's pretty good. Very on brand. I don't think his successor was also named John. The current <laughs> head coach is Gary. Ah, damn you, Gary. Brutal. Fucking Gary. Well, enough about Gary. I don't want to hear any more about Gary. You know what I want to hear about? Xavier's guy this week. I would love to talk about this. First, though, I did want to um, bring something else up. A person who really was a big fish in a small pond, but I thought way too good to be brought up as a full topic. I did want to um, talk about Randy Moss real quick and the time that he spent at Marshall University. We're not talking Uh, about the horse racing commentator? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are not. We are not. Uh, Although that could be fun, too. Randy Moss... We know top recruit had some issues at Florida State and had the transfer, so he went to Marshall instead uh, because he could go to Division One AA at the time where Marshall was and not have to sit out. And all he did was just break every single record known to mankind at Marshall, win the FCS championship, and then for fun decide to show up for the conference track meet and break multiple records, winning multiple uh, conference championships in track, having never practiced before, just showed up at the, at the meet and they let him go. They wanted him to go to nationals, but he said, ah, I'm good. This guy broke records in two sports, one of which he did without trying. He just showed up. He just is wanted the, to prove. He just wanted to, he prove, wanted to prove And obviously we know what Moss did after that, but... 78 catches, 1,700 yards, 28 touchdowns in one season, breaking all of Jerry Rice's records, essentially. If I can interject, while Randy Moss was there, and I know this again, as alluded earlier, a diehard Delaware football fan, the 1AA tournament was just known as the Marshall Invitational while Randy Moss was there. That was what people (laughs) called. Yeah, so, you know, Randy Moss, too good to be a guy, but... He pretty much owned the entire state of West Virginia for a little bit. The person I actually want to talk about, though, 
is in a different sport. So we all know that basketball is a global game. And while the NBA is the best league in the world, there are a lot of incredible leagues and talent to be found outside of America. Diaz briefly mentioned one such player in Arvita Sabonis, who made his name in his native Lithuania, which you might not think of as basketball hotbed, but has produced plenty of talented NBA players and international players on the European scene. But today I want to talk about someone else, someone who dominated two of the top five leagues in the world at the time. I want to talk about Nick the Greek. I was expecting um, Oscar, I don't remember his last Schmidt. name from Brazil. Oscar, Oscar Schmidt. Schmidt, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Nick I'm the sorry. Greek instead, okay. Listen, Xavier, I don't want to hear about Nicolaitis, okay? I've... It's not Nicolaitis. He's <laughs> not that great. He is Nick and he is Greek. Nick Markakis? Nick Markakis. This is Nikolaos Georgialis, otherwise known as Nikos or Nick Gallus. Gallus was born July 23rd, 1957 in Union City, New Jersey. His parents were Greek immigrants from the Dodecanese islands of Rhodes and Nisiros. Growing up in a poor family uh, in the New York City area, young Nikos originally took up boxing, a sport that his father used to uh, participate in. But his mom persuaded him to give it up after he kept coming home with massive cuts to his face every time he went out training. Because, of course. So what's young Nick to do here? He decides to pick up basketball. Late bloomer, uh, doesn't really start playing it until well into high school. But he does do well enough his senior season to get a look from his essentially hometown team, Seton Hall. Plays four years with Seton Hall, and despite his lack of height, uh, he would never grow taller than six foot. He blossomed into a shooting guard who could score for him anywhere. In his senior season, he averaged 27.5 points per game for the Pirates. Third in the country behind Lawrence Butler of Idaho State and one Larry Bird. <laughs> Larry Legend. So... Gallus and Bird actually played together in the 1979 Pizza Hut All-American game, uh, which was the de facto... Uh, Fuck you, McDonald's. <laughs> uh, Bird and Gallus' Eastern team beat the West 107-92. to After his senior season, Gallus won the Haggerty Award for Best Player in the New York City metro area. His head coach at Seton Hall, Bill Raftery, the longtime broadcaster, would later, say that, Gallus, <laughs> would later say that Gallus was the best player he ever coached. After his senior season, Gallus gets drafted by the Celtics in the fourth round at number 68 overall, just one away from being nice. This was back when the draft was 10 rounds with over 200 picks. I can't, I can't believe there was ever a time when that happened, but that was what we were at back then. Despite the Celtics having no first or second round picks that year, Gallus did still had an uphill climb to make the team because a few weeks before the draft, the Celtics came to an agreement with Larry Bird that would make him the highest paid rookie in sports history. Bird had been drafted in 78, but didn't leave school because he didn't want to turn pro. After his signing, the NBA changes the rules so you couldn't just draft a player who wasn't ready to go pro yet and just hold on to them and sign them in the future. Because that's what the Celtics did. Say, what is, a terrible is, city. I almost wish that that thing was still around because I wonder if it would encourage people to stay in college longer. Thankfully, we have NIL to help people like Oscar Shibwe and others stay in college, get that money if they're not ready to go pro yet. I think that helps deal with that, but Dallas goes to training camp. Unfortunately, he suffers a very severe ankle sprain. The Celtics said they don't want to wait to see how he recovers, and Gerald Henderson takes uh, the last spot on the roster. So with the NBA out of reach, 
Gallus starts to get some inquiries from teams in Greece, his parents' homeland. He later admitted that at the time, he had no idea that they even played basketball in Greece. But as a kid from a poor family, the offers he was getting were so eye-watering, he couldn't turn them down. Despite offers from the two largest clubs in Greece, Panathinaikos and Olympiakos, who had won eight of the last nine titles in 19 overall in the 50-plus year history of the Greek League, Gallus decided to sign with Aris Thessaloniki, who had just won the 78-79 title, their first in 49 years. It did not take long for him to make an impact. In his first season with Aris, Gallus averaged 31.5 points per game. Hell yes! In his second season, he averages 44 points per game. I just I just want to put this in deeper context for people who may not be familiar. These games are in 40 minutes. This isn't a 48-minute yeah. NBA game. This is in 40 minutes. These are shorter games, and Gallus did not shoot three-pointers. He was a mid-range, 12-to-14-foot floater guy. And he was highly efficient, too. There were multiple games where he would just go 12-for-12 12 12 from the field or more, not really miss at all. So second season... 44 points per game, which leads the league. Third season, which was 81-82, slight dip, only averages 37.5 points per game, but still He's enough to lead washed. the league. He's washed. Despite his play, Aris finishes behind Panathinaikos in the league all three seasons. And Panathinaikos and Olympiakos dominate. You know, for context, they won 29 of the last 30 Greek uh, titles. They just win pretty much every year. But Gallus wasn't going to let that stop. In 80-81 and 81-82, Aris qualifies to play in the FIBA Korash Cup, which was the third tier of European basketball competition at the time. In eight games, he averages 45 points. He also starts to play for the Greek national team. He averages 20 points per game in 1980 Olympic qualifying on a very bad Greek team, and another 20 points per game in 1981 Eurobasket. Yet, Greece is very bad at this point. They finish pretty much last in both of these competitions. In 82-83, Gallus finally starts seeing some success what he's been doing. Aris breaks through. They win the Greek League. Gallus leads the league in scoring again with 36 points per game. And so I don't have to continue saying it. Gallus leads the Greek League in scoring 11 consecutive times from 1980-81 to 1990-91. So just know that he averages more than 36 points per game for, I think, the next seven or eight seasons and wins the scoring title for 11 years in a row. Absolutely incredible. After the season, he again goes to Eurobasket with Greece and leads the tournament in scoring with 33.6 points per game, including dropping 38 on host France and 32 on eventual champion Italy. Later that fall, the Greek team plays against the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, as part of a uh, overseas tournament, Nikos Gallus goes up against Michael Jordan, and they duel throughout the night. There's a widespread legend that Gallus drops 50 on Jordan, but this is pretty much exaggerated. Real stats I found at Gallus scoring 24 against Jordan, but Jordan scoring 30. UNC won. There is footage of this game. It's on YouTube. Highly recommend looking at it. For the full tournament, UNC wins. Jordan wins the MVP. But Gallus is the top scorer of the tournament. After the 1983-84 season where Panathinaikos comes back and wins the title again, Gallus and Aris go on a streak that has never since been replicated. They win seven straight league titles from the 84-85 season to 90-91, even with the dominances of the Athens clubs. No team ever won more than five in a row. Aris also wins five Greek Cups because 
Much like European soccer, there is a mid-season knockout tournament, and they win that five times, including four straight years where they win the double with both the Greek League and the Greek Cup. At one point during this stretch, Eris wins 80 league games in a row over four seasons, with three consecutive perfect seasons from the 85-86 season to the 87-88 season. Dallas wins five consecutive MVPs and five consecutive finals MVPs. In 1990-91, his last year where he led the league in scoring, he also led the league in assists, which he would then go on to do three more years in a row. So he goes from 10 years of leading the league in scoring and then a year of leading the league in scoring and assists and then three more years of leading the league in assists. I'm so sorry that his peak couldn't line up with Greg Popovich because, my God, would he have been signed to the Spurs in a heartbeat? Well, so, you know, you would think that some NBA teams would have tried to come calling for him given his success, and they did. You know, after all, he was American-born, played in college, drafted. The NBA was aware that he existed. The Celtics and the Nets tried to sign him. The problem was that until 1989, EBA did not allow NBA players to complete at the national team level because European leagues were considered semi-pro or amateur, and the NBA was considered professional. So even though these guys were getting paid and you know paid pretty well, they weren't considered full pros. If he had gone to the NBA, he wouldn't have been allowed to compete with Greece anymore. And Gallus was not going to let that happen. Red Auerbach even once said that not signing Gallus was the single biggest mistake in his career. Could you have imagined Gallus on those 80s Celtics teams? I'm very glad we don't have to. Would have been absolutely ridiculous. So during this time of dominance, Gallus also makes Eris a powerhouse on the European level. He competed in the EuroLeague for seven consecutive seasons. He led the EuroLeague in scoring for each of them. Over nearly 100 games, he averages 35 points and leads them to three consecutive Final Fours from 1988 to 1990. 1987, he also gets uh, another shot to bring glory for the national team. So I talked about how in 81, they were not good. Uh, They finished 9th out of 12 teams. In 83, they finished 11th out of 12 teams. And in 85, they didn't even qualify for Eurobasket. But 87, it's on home soil. This is in Greece. Despite his scoring, they finish fourth in that group, but do just qualify for the knockout round, where they have to face the number two seed, Italy, in the quarterfinals. Gallus scores 38, and Greece wins 90 to 78, which sets up a semifinal against Grazin Petrovic, who he outduels, scoring 30 points to see Greece win 81 77. So now they get to face the favored Soviet Union who were 7-0 and had won both their knockout stage games by double digits. Gallus has one of the games of his life. He puts up 40 points in a 100-3, overtime thriller, which gave Greece their first ever Eurobasket title. He averaged 37 points per game. It was named MVP of the tournament. After the first game, he played every single minute. He refused to be subbed out. Thereby single-handedly ending communism forever. Pretty much, you know, he destroyed the Soviet Union. Like, hey, you lost to some dude from Jersey who plays in the Greek national team. And that's why Vladimir Putin is still pissed off to this day. Yep. You know, for for his efforts, he gets named the Mr. Europa European Basketball Player of the Year for 87, uh, the first Greek to win the award, and the Euroscar for Best European Player of the Year, uh, the first Greek to win that, and the only one until Giannis won that in 2018. In 1991, he gets named to FIBA's 50 Greatest Players list. Again, he's still active at this time, but he's named to this list. 
People reveals the top 10 vote getters, and he was ranked number six of all time. The top five were all Soviets or Yugoslavs, uh, including Petrovich, Sabonis, and Tony Kukoc. So the first non-Soviet or Yugoslav on the list was Nick Gallus at number six. After the 1992 season, Gallus is forced to leave Ayers, though, as uh, new management was trying to clear up some debts. He was their highest paid player. They actually wanted him to retire and coach the team instead. They thought they could do that for cheaper, but he still wanted to play. So he said, I, I, I'd never wanted to leave Aris, but I wanted to keep playing basketball. So he goes to Panathinaikos, and he wins the League Cup, guides them to their first EuroLeague Final Four in 20-plus years. Despite nearly being 37, in the third-place game of EuroLeague, he scores 30 points and a win over Barcelona. Which is a good team. Like, that's, that's not yeah. a... Barcelona a, a is a very shooter. good team. And he, he crushes them. He finally retires in 1994, in October. There was a bit of a controversy where uh, they were facing a somewhat weaker team in the Greek League. And the coach of Panathinaikos, you know, not having the same loyalty to Nick Gallus as Eris may have, decided that he wanted to bench him to play some of the younger guys. As we should know by now, Nick Gallus doesn't like not playing basketball. So he just gets up and leaves and never comes back. <laughs> And that's how he retires. Just walks away and is done with it. Yeah, he just walks away. Overall, Gallus played 589 professional games for Greek teams across all competitions. He averages 33.6 points per game over all of those games. He's the all-time leading scorer of the Greek League during the amateur era, which ran until 1992. That's when FIBA started recognizing European leagues as the fully professional. So they have different stats. But his, I mean, his numbers would be the best for since then, too. It's just they separate them in the official record books. In the FIBA EuroLeague era, which ran from 58 to 2001, all-time top scorer with 4,047 points in 125 games, averaging 32.5 points per game. The next closest player to him scored 400 points less in 80 more games. And just as a note... Also, similar to the Greek uh, League with the different errors, there's also different errors for EuroLeague because EBA ran EuroLeague for the longest time, but never trademarked the name EuroLeague. So in 2000, uh, some of the richest European clubs stole the name and created their own EuroLeague, which is what we now know as EuroLeague, which is a super league. They all have permanent licenses, so no matter what, they're always in it, and they pick random wild card teams that they allow to come in. EuroLeague, uh, as we know it, is not a you qualify based on how well you did in a, na in a national league. It's just invitational only Super League. FIBA actually has recently started their own Champions League type thing, which is based on national league qualification. So you'll get teams from Austria and Belgium and the Netherlands, which are not even allowed to touch the EuroLeague. So they have different stats from before it became a Super League and, and, and after that. In FIBA-recognized games, Gallus played 168 games for the Greek national team, averaged 30.5 points per game. By competition, his highest ever scoring totals in major competitions were 53 points in the FIBA World Cup in a 1986 game against Panama, 46 points in Eurobasket in a game against Sweden in 83, 52 points in EuroLeague, which he did twice, games in 86 and 89, 62 points in the Greek League, which he did in 81, and 48 points in NCAA Division I, which he did against Santa Clara in 1978. 
After his career, Gallus ran a youth basketball camp in Greece for 10 years. His impact on Greece was so large that during the heyday of the Arish dynasty, basketball passed soccer as the most popular sport in the whole country. People were so glued to their TV sets watching him that on Thursdays, the primetime EuroLeague game nights, cinemas nationwide started offering discounts because no one would go out. This became a thing that happened for almost 20 years before cinema started thinking, oh wait, basketball isn't as popular now that the heiress dynasty and Nick Gallus are gone. We can stop doing this. Oh, so the discounts outlasted him. That's such a fun little vestigial thing. Well, so I thought you were going to go to the angle that theaters decided, fuck, like nobody's coming to see movies. What if we bring people in to watch Nikos play? See, that would be a good idea, but I don't know if they could have had like the legal rights to do that. But they tried everything to get people to stop watching because that's all people cared about. Despite Aris not having won a title in 30 years now, they haven't won since he left. They're still one of the most popular teams in the country. Uh, a New York Times article called him the Michael Jordan of Greece. Gregory Ioannidis, a sports lawyer in the UK who studied the effects of the 1987 Eurobasket Championship, noted that it created thousands of jobs and turned basketball from a sport to a commodity in Greece. Quote, Nick Gallus basically gave a lot of people a reason to exist. So man, if when they had to get bailed out by the European Union, it could have been even worse. In 2004, torchbearer for the Athens Olympics, 2007, inducted as a member of the first class of the FIBA Hall of Fame, 2008, named one of the 50 greatest EuroLeague contributors. 2013, Aris renames the court of their home arena to Nick Gallus Hall. 2016, the Athens Olympic Indoor Hall, the home of the Greek national team, renames their court to the Nikos Gallus Olympic Indoor Hall, which is great because it means that he has two courts named after him in the same country. One uses his Greek name, Nikos, and one uses his American name of Nick. I guess that's how they distinguish which one is which. And then in 2017, he gets elected to the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame alongside Tracy McGrady and Rebecca Lobo. And if you look at the YouTube comments of his Hall of Fame speech, it is filled with Greek people freaking out about how great he is and how he's the only reason why basketball is popular at all in the entire country. And there are some really incredible quotes about Nick Gallus from competitors that I found that I just briefly want to talk about. I never thought there was such a good offensive player in Europe, and especially in Greece. Michael Jordan. I've seen Gallus do things that I've never seen the Lakers or Celtics do. Hall of Famer Bob McAdoo. I admire him. When he plays one-on-one, there's no way to stop him. I didn't think that there would ever be a player who by himself could cause nightmares and even beat the Soviet Union. Sergei Belov, who is considered the greatest European and Soviet basketball player of all time. If Gallus wants to score, he will score no matter who's defending him. Arvidas Sabonis. If I'm the son of the devil, then Gallus is the devil himself, Drazen Petrovic. He would take over the game and he was unstoppable, Vladi Divac. He just elevated Greek basketball up to a European top status. He's a national hero, Detlef Shrimp. And then, simply enough, they called him God, Tony Kukoc. Nikos Gallus, he is the Greek god. He is your European favorite player's favorite player. Well, to me, there's there's a pretty clear through line here, right? Like Giannis, Giannis exists. I'm not saying he doesn't exist, but Giannis in the NBA as he is probably oh, yeah. doesn't exist if, if not for Nikos Gallus. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I that he actually talks about during his Hall of Fame speech is that before he came to Greece, there were no pickup courts around. It was not a thing that people just picked up and played. 
it really was during this Irish dynasty in the 80s that basketball became a sport that people liked to play. If not for that, there is a good chance that there is no court or youth team for Giannis to, to play on. If you've ever seen the Rise movie, which I think is still fantastic, you should go, go watch. So, yes, we can we can give Nikos Gallus the credit for creating the infrastructure that let Giannis be as great as he is. On his Wikipedia's career achievements list, it's very bottom, just a bullet point. Giannis Antetokounmpo. <laughs> his Wikipedia page has enough achievements as it is. I don't know if it needs to add any more. But uh, Nikos Gallus, incredibly big fish in... You know, I, I don't I don't want to call the Greek League a small pond because it was considered one of the best, if not the best, national European league at the time. And he also dominated EuroLeague, which is the second best league like in the world. But I'm I'm sure that outside of Greece, where he is again God, a lot of Americans don't know who he is. We could say it. it's a small pond. But we'll have to wait a little bit to to see whether or not we add Hall of Guy inductee into that long Wikipedia list of accomplishments. I'm going to talk about a guy who does not have quite as many. Before I get to him, though, there's, there's something that I really think this has brought into my mind as we've talked about these big fishes in small ponds, and it's, we love to do our portmanteau words. It's what I'm going to call the guile deluxe problem. Am I pronouncing this correctly, you think? You know, it's a question of how big is the fish? How small is the pond? We're, we're talking about this as if it's some very clear-cut thing, and I think the story of my guy is really... The story of trying to find the pond that is the right size for you. Interesting, since we've gone from a D3 pond to an entire country pond. Exactly, exactly. And we're going to try out a whole lot of ponds. As we talk about my guy this week, John Gorman. Or as friends call him, Gory. Either of you heard of him before? I have not. That's, that's perfectly fine. Not a well-known individual. I did find him while I was trying to search the sport that he played because I was interested in seeing big fish in a small pond in the world of soccer. What made me think of that was the idea that in these leagues, because of promotion and relegation, there are very often teams that fulfill this, this kind of thing. And also, these teams have to struggle with the idea of, well, what's the right pond for us? And John Gorman, I think, is a beautiful person to kind of illustrate that journey. That journey is going to start in Winchburg, Scotland in 1949 when he's born. Winchburg is very near Lothian in Scotland. So while he was definitely exposed to the hearts. I'm a big hearts fan. Big hearts fan. You're a big hearts fan over here. But what John Gorman's going to do, he looks at this world of Scottish football. He sees that there are two big fish in this small pond. And they are the definition of Scottish football. That is Celtic FC and Rangers. Diehard rivals. Absolutely hate one another, partially because of the football, also partially because they represent the sectarian split in Glasgow of Protestants and Catholics. So that's not super fun. But what is fun is how good these two teams are at Scottish football. They have won 107 combined titles between the two of them. Rangers do slightly edge out Celtic FC, but Celtic FC is where John Gorman first tries to go in 1968. This is the year after the Annus Mirabilis for Celtic FC. Uh, just a truly marvelous Annus by Celtic FC in 1967. They win the Scottish <laughs> League, the Scottish Cup, the Scottish League Cup, which is a different thing, the Glasgow Cup, and in a rare instance of leaving their small pond, they go and win the 1967 European Cup. This is the predecessor to the Champions League, and they're the first British team to ever win. They're also the first non-Spanish, Portuguese, or Italian win at all. So they win that in 67. That's where John Gorman comes in. 
Got two years where he gets one game at all in those two years. So again, we're trying to find our right pond. John Gorman, he saw these big fish in a small pond, but this pond's too big for him. He's got to go to a smaller pond. He gets signed by Carlisle United. This is an English team now. He's hopping to the southern part of the island. And they, at this point, are in the second division. So he's going to a more prestigious league, but he's dropping down a division. He gets pretty comfortable here. He's got a couple seasons there, five altogether, where he is a totally competent 5'8 defender. Pretty small guy, only an inch taller than Connor Laid. So we're not expecting big (laughs) things from him. He's not trying to do big things. He's happy here at Carlisle United in the second division. And they're pretty good here in the second division. In 11 seasons that they spend there during this stretch, they finish in the top half seven times. They do so well at the end of that 11 season run that they finish third and they give John Gorman his first ever experience into the world of promotion and relegation, which I do feel like we need to touch on for just a moment, just in case there are any listeners that are not incredibly familiar with the two primary systems of sports league organization. That is promotion and relegation and its counterpart, the closed model league. Closed model league is what we're more familiar with here in North America. It's based on fixed franchise rights, just kind of what like Xavier was talking about a second there with the newer European league in basketball. It was really developed by baseball's National League initially, and it's two things. One, uh, capitalism. Everything's a product of capitalism, unfortunately. Also a product of just the massive geographic size of the United States. When they were setting up the National League, they're like, look, it costs so much to travel that if we have a bunch of rival teams all in the same cities, we're going to cannibalize one another. We need to have exclusive territorial rights. And so that's kind of what gave birth to the first ever closed model league that remains the predominant model in the United States, Canada, Australia, and Singapore. Yeah, Singapore. That's what we have here. Again, very capitalistic. What almost every other league in every other sport in every other country in the world has is some kind of promotion relegation system, wherein there are several tiers governed by one larger sporting body, and you either get promoted or relegated, or you stay in place at the end of every season, with promotion essentially being a reward for a good performance the season before, and relegation being a punishment for the opposite, doing particularly poorly. There are definitely non-playing conditions that some teams have to meet that are sometimes a little bit exclusive. There are definitely financial disparities that reward teams that have just dropped down to a league versus ones that got to work their way up. But all in all, You might call it a fair system. In fact, it gives you things like the rise of Carlisle United when John Gorman finds himself there. In 1958, there had been two different third divisions in England, and they combined with the bottom half of their teams getting sent down to the newly created fourth division. This is where Carlisle United was in 1958. Spent four years there before getting promoted to the third division, just one year in the third division before getting up to second. And then that's that aforementioned 11-year run where they finish in the top half seven times, including the five years with John Gorman. And now, following this, they're going to make their first ever appearance in the top flight. This is still the first division is years before the Premier League. But again, though, this whole story is going to be about fish finding the right pond size. And while they do get off to a 3-0 and start, all shutouts, this puts them atop the league table which makes it all the more impressive that they do finish in dead last at the end of the season. Uh, They only have the one year in first division before they are promptly set down. John Gorman, he's here in second division again. He honestly does not play all that much during that one season in first division. He plays immensely leading up to that, reduced minutes in first, but then they get back to the second division. So you'd think, okay, we're happy, we're good, this is where we want to be. They actually get relegated again to third division. John Gorman can't stand for this. Gorey's like, no, I didn't want first, but I don't want third. 
I need my porridge to be just right, folks. And so he decides instead to go and join Tottenham. Boo! 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 (laughs) I appreciate the visceral reaction. Uh, And here's the thing. They're in the first division initially. So what's Gory going to do? Gory doesn't have to worry about that because Jimmy Case, early in the season, slide tackles him, and he misses their entire time in the first division, during which they get relegated. This is great. Xavier, I love the Greek chorus so much right now because here's the thing. It's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. Now you'd think, I'm going to say now you think a lot, I feel like, during this whole thing because John Gorman never quite gets it right. You would want him to be excited about having now a year in second division with Tottenham, but that injury actually takes a long time to work back from. And without his stabilizing second division force on the field, Tottenham fucks it up and they do so well that they get promoted back to first division. We can't stand for this. John Gorman cannot play in first division. So instead, you know, he's been struggling here to find the right pawn for him. He decides, you know what? There's one place I can guarantee is a smaller pond. Across the pond. (laughs) John Gorman gets on a plane, flies to America, and joins the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Let's go Rowdies. The Tampa Bay Rowdies are a team that came about in the 70s because they had the first edition of, like, Soccer Fever. And this is the North American Soccer League. We're going to talk about lower-level professional soccer leagues again for, I think, the fourth consecutive time this season. Part of the benefit to this is that it is a closed league. John Gorman comes here. He knows, look, I am staying where I'm comfortable, which is a mid-level North American professional soccer league with managed expectations. Damn it. He's pretty great. He jumps in. Tampa Bay is a league favorite team. They were really good at marketing themselves. The Rowdy is like a sort of cowboy. Don't ask me why there's a cowboy in St. Petersburg. They go with it. They love it. And in 79, they're big fans of John Gorman because they go ahead and win their division for the fourth time in five years with him finishing on second team all NASL team. The next year, they win their division again. They do lose in the semis, but John, once again, gets an NASL honorable mention. The next year, he gets his only all-star spot. Tampa Bay makes the playoffs again, losing the first round. Now here's the problem. We get to 1982, and the NASL as a whole is starting to falter a little bit. The league is losing steam. Many of the teams are getting very close to folding. What's more, Tampa's not doing very well anymore. And So John Gorman, we've talked about, he's someone who's happy to move to greener pastures, bigger and or smaller ponds, depending on the situation, at the drop of a hat. He doesn't know what size fish he is, and we haven't found the right pond yet. While Tampa Bay is going down, he's the last couple seasons been playing in the NASL's like winter off-season league, which is indoors. He's gotten a taste of this, so he decides to join the first ever major indoor soccer league in America. Now he's going to be one of the singular biggest fishes in this pond whatsoever, And it turns out, okay, there is a pond that's too small. There is a point where John Gorman gets there and the fish can no longer breathe. Even in Tampa, when they were like slowing down, they were averaging around 25,000 fans, getting as high as 50,000 sometimes. When he gets to Phoenix, where he plays for the Major Indoor Soccer League, one year for the Phoenix Inferno, and then the next year for the Phoenix Pride, not different teams, they just changed the name. That does not change that both years, they average under 6,400 fans per game. John Gorman is not going to stand for a pond this small. He looks around and he decides, you know what? I just don't think there is a pond for me, John Gorman. So he hangs up his cleats and calls it a playing career. But we're not done. He gets a call from a friend that he made while he was in Tottenham, Glenn Hoddle. Glenn Hoddle. 
I'm going to talk about Glenn Hoddle for a little bit now. So, like, if you need to get it out of your system real quick, I, please, by all means. It, it, it's all right. It's all right. Despite being one of the best players in Tottenham history, he never won anything because they suck. So it's fine. He does not win anything. But, you know, what? I'm going to tell you, it might not necessarily be Glenn Hoddle's fault. Let's start with things that we know are directly related to Glenn Hoddle. Because in 1991, Glenn Hoddle, he's still playing, even though his good friend John Gory Gorman has since retired. And he, in fact, is a player manager at this point, who in 1991 is brought into Swindon Town Football Club. Swindon Town, in the late 80s, had just won the second division to earn their first ever promotion to the first division, except, almost immediately after that, they plead guilty to 35 charges of illegally paying players. That's a lot. For one season, by the way. 35 charges all related to a single season. It's more, like, not even that many players on a 30, team. Right? They broke down that they pled guilty to 35 of 36 charges. There's one that they contested. There's 25 players on a, on, a, on a squad, at least now. But back then, they really they didn't really use subs that much. Had one sub a game, maybe more by the early 90s. But they must have been paying youth players or something, too. Well, whatever they did, it received heavy penalties. Which, for one, included all kinds of financial penalties, given that this was based around that. But also, they have their promotion revoked. The runner-up of that game gets taken instead. So Swindon Town FC is flailing. They call on Mr. Glenn Hoddle. They ask him to come be their player manager. And he knows he's going to be on the field a lot, so he needs someone he can trust. And he calls his good pal, Gory. Gory hears this and he goes, you know what? You know what the perfect size pond is? The assistant head coach-sized pond. John Gory <laughs> Gorman signs up for this in a heartbeat. <clears throat> And so they come to Swindon Town, and Hoddle turns it around, very much because of his play on the field. He's still a very high-level player. That first year, they're desperate to stay in the second division. Yo, if there's anything that John Gorman knows, it is how to stay in the second division. So, of course, they succeed that year. They avoid relegation all the way down to third. The next season, Hoddle gets a little ahead of himself, forgets that he's got John Gorman with him, and they do win the first-ever Division I playoff to put them in the Premier League, the 93-94 season. Swindon Town has never been in the Premier League before because the Premier League had not existed prior to this. But <laughs> Huddle gets them up there, and then Huddle gets that promotion for the team. He decides he wants his own promotion. He gets the manager job with Chelsea. So Big Fish in the second division, John Gorman, just became Little Fish in the much larger pond of the 1993-1994 Premier League, John Gorman with Swindon Town's manager. They do not even get the 3-0 start that Carlisle did all that way back. They only score three goals across their first seven games. They suffer <laughs> 12 shutouts and 17 <clears throat> games where they only score one goal. They allow 100 goals over the season for a differential of negative 53. That is good enough for dead last, but not just dead last. It is dead last 10 points clear of any other team. Yeah, they were they were cast. What's the phrase, Xavier? They they were cut away. They were cut adrift. Cast adrift. Cast adrift. Yes, they were cast very adrift. Yeah, Glenn Hoddle pieced out, and John Gorman was not meant to be in a pond that size. So the next year, they're back in second division. Maybe John Gorman takes off here. No, it turns out no matter what size pond he's in as a manager, manager is too big of a pond for him. He needed that assistant manager pond to really thrive. After a hot start, once it's clear that they're going to get relegated and sent down to third division, they're like, okay, if he can't even keep us in second anymore, we got to kick him out. Despite this, he does try a couple more times this pond. He will be a caretaker manager four more times in his career in the Premier League. Not a single one of those times 
after teams try him out in that pond, do they decide he is a big enough fish? He is not hired <laughs> on any of those caretaker manager jobs full time after his half seasons. In the middle of all this, there is one more fish pond thing I want to touch on, and it is still with his friend Glenn Hoddle. In 1998, Glenn Hoddle is not only a player manager in the Premier League, he is also the head of the English national team, and he coaches them in the World Cup. This World Cup being held in France. Ask his buddy, John Gorman, to come on over. John Gory Gorman is prominently very Scottish, and in fact, Scotland (laughs) qualifies this year. Scotland is in the World Cup despite this. John Gorman's like, you know what? I haven't learned anything from my lifetime of not being able to tell what size pond is correct for me, the fish John Gorman. I'm not going to go to Scotland. I'm going to come join my buddy Glenn Hoddle over here with England. Now, you could say, well, Scotland doesn't go out of the group stage, and in fact, they don't win a game. They finish 0-1-2, and and maybe he was right. Sure, England advances out, but England does immediately lose then in the first round of knockout stages. Many people may blame that on the poor play and ejection of a young David Beckham against Argentina that day. However, I think by now, the three of us and anyone else that's been listening along knows, that's not what was at fault here. What was at fault was that someone that was core to the management of this team was just too small of a fish for the pond that day. And you can't get over that. And that's kind of the last illustration of that point in his career. And he does seem to finally, in this like twilight of his life, find the right level of teams. Teams like Northampton Town, Ipswich Town, the Queens Park Rangers, the MK Dons. Third and Boo MK Dons. Boo MK Dons. The Milton Keynes Dons? What do you have against the Milton Keynes Dons? I'll tell you another time, but MK Dons are a bad team that destroyed the history of a previously very fun and great team, AFC Wimbledon. Yeah, I saw some of this when I was briefly looking into just these silly teams that he managed at the end of his career, but I appreciate you for being able to provide some context there. A little bit more context also for the end of his career. He does, in 2006, suffer a lot of heartbreak when his beloved high school sweetheart Myra passes away uh, at the age of 56 from cancer. That's kind of when he starts to step back. In 2008, he releases an autobiography entitled The Gory Details. Uh, He's 72 now, and he is still with his two children, Nick and Amanda. When he was rehabbing in Tottenham, there's one last thing that he developed then that, one, I love about him just to know about him as a person, but also I think is just one last perfect crystallizing sprinkle of Jimmy's on top of this ice cream sundae. So he's rehabbing with Tottenham in the 70s from that injury from Jimmy Case. He gets into cartooning, and his cartoons are decent. They're actually featured in the game day programs at Tottenham a lot during these two seasons where he's rehabbing. Continues with this. He still, nowadays, does a lot of cartoons that are put in whatever team he happens to be associated with at that time. And what he does is caricatures. And I just love that because, to this day, he's just drawing these big heads and these little bodies because it's all about just finding whatever silly size works for you He's a fish of unknown size who tried all of <laughs> many ponds. Some were too big, some were too small, some were just right. But in each, regardless of whether he was a big or a small fish, he was definitely a big guy. Metaphorically, because again, he is five foot eight. So like not physically <laughs> a big guy. That's John Gory Gorman for you. It was very pleasant, except for the Tottenham part, except for the Tottenham part where they got relegated because that part was pleasant. I'm sorry they couldn't have stayed down longer for both you and John Gorman. Who knows? Maybe he could have found his, his real comfort spot there with the relegated Spurs. But It's all right. You know, they, they've been relegated more recently than they won a title, so I still get to enjoy that. Hey, man. 
Ice team's been relegated like five teams since the last time we won a title, so. You know what? You finished fifth the year that they got relegated. Was that the same year? That's crazy. Chelsea yeah. got promoted to take Tottenham's place that year. I'm so sure Glenn Hoddle was, was rubbing his maniacal little hands. Glenn Hoddle, bad person. So I found. Yeah, I didn't want to dwell on that too much. Glenn Hoddle, not a great guy. John Gorman sees fine. Doesn't keep the best company, but John Gorman. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you, Glenn Hoddle got fired from England for a specific bad reason. Yeah. And like, he's not even the worst English celebrity to then be quote unquote canceled in what, the last 10 years? We've probably had 10 more worse than him. The only surprise was that it was 99 and he got in trouble for being bad. I would have expected that you can just do whatever you want back then, but. Yeah, and we can't do whatever we want because I'm sure what we would want is to say all three of these guys are phenomenal and, and bring them on in. But that's not what we do here, folks. We have to make tough decisions. And I believe the time has come to make those decisions. Gentlemen, if you have any opening salvos, I'm, I'm all ears. Nick Gallus is God of an entire country. I mean, what I would say for Nikos is you need to look at the, the, the butter guy effect, right? Like what <laughs> happens because of this guy? And there's no Giannis, there's no Tanasis, there's no Kostas, there's no Rise movie. None of that happens without uh, Nikos. And for, for Greece going on to win, what did they, they won the 2002 FIBA championship, I think. That probably doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It is not for Nikos Gallus, so... His impact is certainly massive. Again, his like minimization of the financial crisis. It's exactly. They may have just been bought out by... Rome. The Romans just come back, and now the Romans <laughs> go to Greece. <laughs> yeah, I mean, far be it for me to stop someone who might have stopped us from having an even worse global recession than we did in the mid-2010s. That being said... We've established that's probably one of the bigger pawns someone else has gone to, and he did get rejected from a smaller pond. Now, after having just brought up Gory, to each their own pond. I I admit, I do like Gory just from the many different leagues, but it's tough for me to make a call for him when he has been at the top flight so many times. Even if only for one flaming bag of dog do here each time. <laughs> I, I think of him as like... It's like, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? It's like, where in the world is Gory in the second best league? Tried on so many different small ponds. I didn't know there were so many bad leagues of football in other countries. Like, I knew every team had their top league. But man, there's so many different places where you can just be mediocre. And still better than 99% of the population of what you do, to be clear. You know, that's the glory of football. There's... It's, it, it is everywhere. And England has four different professional leagues at this point. So a lot of places say, for John Gorman to fit in. If we're going just by smallest pond and biggest fish, just like on those strict terms, it might have to be our boy Johnny Gillardi. Uh, it might have to be our boy Johnny Gillardi because D3 football in college is a pretty darn small pond. And he is a massive fish with all those wins. Gagliardi, first of all, I mean, Gagliardi. That's a thing. The John connection, Johnny Blood to John Gillardi at St. John's. There's some parallelism there. And the winningest coach in all time. And what what I think is the biggest tribute to a guy is what his guys say about him. And the fact that 60 years worth of players all came back to this small town in Minnesota to pay tribute to him when he retired. 
I mean, guy recognized guy, and many guys recognize that guy. Fair. Who was the Mount Union coach? Because that's the only thing that I have a question about, because it sounded sound like Mount Union won many more times, which would make Mount that's... Union the big fish in the D3 pond. So Mount Union last won the national championship in 2017. At the time, their head coach was Larry. It looks like it's Larry Carries, which is just a, a joyful name to say. K-E-H-R-E-S, and Larry is just Larry. How many titles did he win? Larry Carries, which is the correct way to pronounce his name in this podcast, won 11 D3 titles from 93 to 2012. Okay, I'm glad you brought this point up. He is running up to one just slightly bigger fish repeatedly. That might tip the scales for Nick the Greek just a little bit, I have to be honest. a lot of wins. Yeah. Here's the other knock against Nick the Greek. We've talked about his legacy, which is immense. I mean, do we think he's going to get supplanted as the most famous Greek basketball player of all time? How does he stack up in Greece to Giannis in the public perception right now? I think that's the, the defining question for him. Is he still the biggest fish in terms of the cultural consciousness? Tough because you'd have to separate international from, from domestic. Because as Americans, we're not used to our best players playing somewhere else. That's not America. But you could definitely separate them off. Because how often would a Greek person be able to watch Giannis in person compared to, you know, being able to watch Dallas play in person for 15 years across the country. You can enjoy Giannis a lot, but you're going to be watching Giannis play at like 4 a.m. Greek time or maybe a highlights the next day. I mean, I'm not Giannis would destroy Nick, uh, Nick the Greek in any, in, in any way, but Purely based on Greek basketball itself, I think it's still going to be Nick. I do have to say, it has been sick seeing the Antetokounmpo. Uh, it has been sick seeing the Antetokounmpo brothers all playing for Greece over there right now. Um, been very, very cool, but certainly nowhere near the international career of our boy Nicky the Greek. Nikki the Greek is great, and I, I feel like I'm between him and Gory, and it doesn't sound like Gory has any other support, which I respect. We're opinionated people here, and we got to make tough decisions. If Gory is off the table, I think I need to throw my weight behind Nick the Greek. I myself am torn between the two. I do feel like Gallardi is going to be somebody that the Veterans Committee is going to look at <laughs> upon relitigation. But, I mean, it's, it's hard to when When the GOAT of the sport is wowed by his ability, you know, we, we, we can defer to that. And the fact that we haven't heard of him before. I had not heard this uh, this wonderful Greek man who was born in America, which I just think is another fascinating little twist of this. Like, yeah, I, I assume, like, I'm going to look up his speech after this, and I'm going to assume he speaks English with just, like, a Jersey accent. Okay. He looks incredible. and sounds exactly like you would expect him to, despite, you know living in Greece for 30 plus years. He like whatever you picture, I'm that's Jersey exactly Nick. it. That, that, hey, what's up? It's me, Jersey Nick. I will send you the four minute speech after this because it's exactly what you would expect. Hey, I'm shooting floaters over here. <laughs> I mean, I have to agree also because you just trotted out such a good parade of guys. I like to talk about, you know, how many tangential guys you can get splitting off of someone. And those quotes at the end, just absolutely phenomenal murderer's row of guys. So it, it sounds like there's consensus.
So with that being the case, it is our great honor to induct into this hall one of the great New Jersey basketball players of all time, and indisputably the second greatest Greek basketball player of all time. I'm going to put Giannis ahead of him. I'm sorry. It's fine. But it's fine. nonetheless, the, the Michael Jordan of Greek basketball, the forefather, the creator, as some put it, the god, but as we put it, the guy of Greek basketball, Nikos Gallus, welcome into the Hall of Guy. Welcome into these hallowed halls. We'll try and make sure that your bust is done in the, the classic Greek style we're in. Instead of being just blank marble, actually, we'll be very garishly painted, which is what we've discovered most of those statues were done up in back in the antiquity of Greece. Are we also going to, you know, are we going full? You know what I mean? Are we going full frontal on this? That's the way the Greeks did it. I, I mean, what's, what's the other option? Basketball shorts are basically full frontal nudity. Look, man, everyone can see everything. They don't leave much to the imagination, and uh, we don't leave much to the imagination. We've had a lot today. I do think that was our first true miss. And so let's take that as a sign that it is time for us to sign off. Thank you guys so much again for listening to us. We will keep you posted on the outcomes of the Clockwork Orange League Championship round. Let it be known we are all pulling for the Philadelphia Liberty, and Monday morning you will know whether or not they have won the inaugural championship. But until then, I've been James. I've been the number one Nick Gallus fan outside of the country of Greece, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Gus once said about Chris, that Johnson's got getting away from the guy speed. Thank you.